Feels like it should be a game show, doesn't it? Love that. Yeah, what's behind door number one? All right. Hey, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Uh, glad you guys are here out there online, wherever you are in the world, whenever it is in time and space. We're glad that you're joining us, especially you guys here in-house. So glad to see all your faces, some faces we maybe haven't seen in a little bit, um, and some faces we see every weekend, and you're just a part of our family. It matters. We love seeing all this, and I just love being able to be up here, and I get the blessing and honor to be able to, to teach you a word today. Um, before I get into the actual message, you know, Pastor Gabe talked about some transitions. There's another transition that's going on uh, in addition to that. I just feel like this is a time of all kinds of things being pruned and shaken and upturned. And, and the picture that God gave me was of an apple cart. You ever heard this, the phrase, I'm going to upset your apple cart? God gave me that picture. And <clears throat> nobody, right off the bat, Nobody likes to have their apple cart upset. Anybody here like that? Nobody likes that. But when God ordains it, it's something different than we think. We just think my everyday, the way I do things, the way I think, the way I go through my life is all going to be changed. And almost always we see that in a negative light. But when God is ordaining that thing, it's all his. The cart's his, the apples are his. And he can place them where he wants to place them. And we think, I've spent my whole entire life getting my apple cart arranged just like I like it. And then to have it dumped and have to start over. Few of us like that. But God is telling me and speaking to me that I'm going to take these pieces and we're going to move some of them over here. We're going to move some over here. We're going to place these others a little bit differently. And it's all ordained by him. So when he dumps that cart out, you can be assured that those apples are going where he wants them to go, as long as you follow him, as long as you listen to his leading and do it his way. And so this is an exciting thing. You listen uh, to Pastor Gabe talk about the Carsons moving on, and that, in my heart, that initially feels like, oh man, that's just, that's a bummer. But then I think, no, God is ordaining this. And I can go back several months, all the way into January, and see the things that God has put together and the circumstances he's put together to to orchestrate this in a way that no human being ever could. And it just shows me that he's in this. He's in this move. And if he's in that move, then he's going to bring blessing to both them who are moving into a new thing and us who now have a space to fill. Moving from a building, this building that we love, into a different building. Trying to get used to how does that work. Again, he's dumping all the apples out and he's going to place them in that new place just like he wants them to be. And I know for a fact, there's a lot of it that's daunting sitting here going, that's a lot that has to happen. But I know it's going to be amazing. And we are going to have in, in two months, three months, six months, whatever the timing is, we're going to be able to sit here and just say, what an amazing thing that God has done because we can see the way he's put all these pieces together. So in that, Pastor Gabe talked about the moving of the Carsons. I want to talk about the new building one more time. One more time. We'll talk about it several times between now and when we get there. Um, But again, God is ordaining this. He's moving all these things in the right way. He's putting pieces together in a miraculous way. Last week, I did 
the ask. And I said, look, we have a certain amount of money, 50000 it was, to come up with um, for our contribution towards the down payment and everything. And we are, thank you, Jesus, through the faithfulness of you and other people, we're halfway there. Halfway. Yeah. Halfway is amazing. Thank you, Jesus, that we are halfway there. But we're only halfway there. We're like Moses perched up looking at the promised land, you know, saying, okay, we're, we're close, but we're not quite there. And so I don't want you to hear, we're halfway there, things are going great, God is moving, this is awesome, they don't need me. Don't hear that. Here, we still need God's people to be faithful and to get us over that hump, get us to that place where we've got it. So we're halfway there. We've got about 25,000 of the 50 we need. We need to put that together. So I need to ask you, if you've already participated in that and already given what God's put on your heart, thank you. Thank you. You've gotten us this far. It is amazing. But I know that God has more. And the way he provides for that is he puts it on people's heart. And then it's up to us to be obedient to what we hear. So that's all I'm asking for is you take two steps. One is pray to God how he would have you donate or if he would to this cause And then secondly, to be obedient to what you hear. That's all it takes. If we all did that all day, every day, what an amazing thing would happen in this world. This is not an insurmountable mountain. This is just a small thing in the scheme of what God can do. But he uses us, so we have to be faithful to what we hear. And that's all I'm asking. Be faithful. If you're out there online, all the online platforms have a drop-down box that says building project or building fund, some way like that. If you're here in-house... Um, just put building or three trees or something in your memo if you drop it off and help us get there. Now, I feel like I shouldn't have to speak on this, but my pastor, Pastor John, has taught me several times, be sure that you clarify that a giving to a, to a fund like this or to a project like this is not in place of your tithe. It can't come. Our tithe belongs to God. God has gifted us with that. And it is something that we should do out of the joyful gladness of our hearts to give back to the kingdom. This is in addition to. This is called an offering. It's a special offering. It's above and beyond what your tithe would be. Don't confuse the two because it matters. Okay. So if you have any questions, talk to me later. I don't want to go into that too much more. But we are, we are halfway there. We have signed the contract. The building's under contract. We have put down the first part of the earnest money. Um, we are... We are moving. This is an amazing thing, and it's great times, amazing times. So let's see it as that, and let's just thank God for what he has done um, and continues to do. It's just going to be a fun ride. So, all right, so let's get into the message before I go too much further. Thank you to Pastor Gabe for last weekend. If you weren't here last week when she taught uh, on the transfiguration, go back and listen to it. It was a really good message. I love being able to hear it. And what a cool thing that got orchestrated with the timing of it being Mother's Day, and she got to teach on Mother's Day, which is one of her favorite things to do, and, uh, and teach a message that was on her heart, the transfiguration. So um, go back and listen to it if you missed it. But so what she was teaching on um, in the first part of Mark chapter 9, uh, it's just commonly called the transfiguration. And what it is is Jesus... And Peter and James and John, they leave the other disciples and they go up on the mountain. And they go up on the mountain to essentially witness the, the coronation, if you will, uh, of Jesus and his ministry as Messiah. 
He is literally transfigured. He begins to glow. His clothes glow white. There is an appearance by Moses and Elijah, uh, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Listen to him. So that's almost that moment where his official, now you've been doing ministry as, as a prophet, as Jesus, as, as the son of man. Here we are going to explicitly say, you are the Messiah. And it's at that moment where, he, where he's literally transformed right in front of their eyes, a transfiguration. That is an amazing story and an amazing time. But this is why I love the Gospel of Mark so much. Because from those highs, it's immediately like, okay, let's get down to reality now. And so from that high in the, in the minds of uh, Jesus and his humanity and, and James and, and John and Peter... They come down the mountain after witnessing all that. They're probably thinking, we're going to come down to some sort of a celebration. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have, it's going to be something fantastic. It's not exactly what happens as we start going through this. So we're in Mark 9. We're going to start in verse 14 and go to the end. If you want to see kind of a parallel account, read Matthew 17. And it's kind of a parallel account of what's going on here. But here we are, Mark 9, 14. They're coming down the mountain. And when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Okay, so they walk down, and the first thing they see is the nine disciples who didn't go up the mountain with Jesus. And they're arguing. There's a crowd around, and they're arguing back and forth with the scribes, which is another word for the Pharisees. And they're arguing. <laughs> So talk about, in our vernacular, a buzzkill, right? You're all full of this. You're just full of excitement for what you've just witnessed, and you walk down, and here's an argument that I need to wade into the middle of. And that's what he does. That's exactly what happened. And isn't this just like what happens with us today? Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down from this amazing experience with God And the devil immediately, in this case, it's in the form of the Pharisees, tries to throw a wrench into the party, right? You're you're on this high, you're feeling good, things have gone well, you're so full of the Spirit, and you're just excited. Anybody else here have that dynamic in their life where, along with every just spiritual high that you experience, without fail, there's some sort of low that comes swooping in underneath to try and steal that joy from you? It happens all the time, so much so that it's just a cliche. Everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say that. It's just how it always seems to work. The devil is always trying to discourage you right after every victory. And so what we find here, excuse me, in the absence of Jesus and arguably the three strongest apostles, though they spend plenty of time arguing about that, but but Peter... And James and John, who are known as the sons of thunder, right? These are no shrinking violets. They're probably the core, strong personalities of this disciple group, along with Jesus, and they're gone. So while they're gone, the disciples that are left behind (coughs) decide, well, we're going to try and carry on some ministry. It's very human. We're not just going to sit here. We're going to try and do some things. And so they had been healing. They had been... Uh, delivering. They had been teaching all these things in the name of Jesus. They had been commissioned 
Remember, it's called a limited commission that Jesus gave them to go and do that. So they said, let's just do that while we're here. It kind of makes sense. You're a disciple of Jesus. You're standing right there. You're, you're waiting for him. Let's go do some healing. Let's go do some delivering. And that's exactly what they do. The problem is it didn't work. They were specifically presented with one boy who was suffering uh, demonically possessed his, his whole life since he was a child. And they tried to deliver him, and it didn't work. Well, that did two things. Number one, it probably discouraged the, the, the boy, discouraged the father, but it also then gave the enemy something to work with. The enemy, in terms of the Pharisees, coming out and pointing at them and heckling them and saying, it didn't work, you guys tried it, it didn't work, you guys are just fake, you guys are are just sorcerers, whatever it is they're throwing at them, it didn't work. So recognizing Jesus, as he approaches, the crowd surrounds him and starts to tell him what's been going on. Right, Mark 9.15, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Now think about that really quick, amazed. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who... Peter and James and John were. Most of them probably knew who they were. Why would they be amazed? Is that just like a weird typo or just a weird adjective to use in there? They were amazed when they came. No. Here's what I think happened, and Scripture isn't clear on this. It doesn't really elaborate on why they were amazed, but I think it's likely that Jesus still carried some of that countenance from the transfiguration, still carried maybe some of that glow, some of that shine from that moment. The reason I think that it's not unheard of, it actually happened back in Exodus um, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. Let me read this to you, Exodus 34, 29 and 30. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So his face is shining, and he didn't even realize that it was. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to approach him. So he had those lingering effects of being right in the presence of God, and it was still shining, and he didn't even know it. And the people were afraid of him. I think, I'm just guessing here, but this is what I infer from Scripture, that Jesus probably still had some of that shine, some of that glow, because he had been transfigured right in front of the other disciples. That would explain the amazement right as he walked in. Mark 9, 16, and he asked them, this is Jesus asking the crowd, what are you disputing with them? He's actually directing that at the Pharisees who were there. What are you disputing with them? This was a major breach of protocol that the Pharisees had just committed here. It wasn't okay for the Pharisees in the absence of their rabbi. That's who the Pharisees thought Jesus was, just a rabbi. But you wouldn't direct a challenge to the students. You would direct a challenge to the rabbi. That was protocol. So they were breaking their own self-imposed protocol rules by hassling the students, the disciples, why they were there. So he asked him that question, what are you disputing with them? Mark 9, 17, and one person from the crowd answered him, teacher, 
I brought you my son because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Okay, that's a bigger thing than it seems like on the surface. According to the, the Jewish tradition of exorcism and the way the rules worked, and I've spoken on this before, one of the first things, again, according to the Pharisees, that you tried to do was to ascertain the name of the demon that was tormenting someone. That's how you did it. And then what they said is once you know his name, now you can, now you can converse with this demon. The problem is being that this one rendered the subject unable to speak, they couldn't do that. So the Pharisees would have seen this demonic possession of this boy as, as a higher level. Like maybe the demon is stronger. It's certainly more difficult. If our, if our go-to is to find the name, but this demon is not letting this person speak, how, where do we even go with that? So they were struggling with it probably already, and I can imagine them just saying, of course not. Of course it didn't work. Your disciples tried it, and they can't do it. Let's see what happens with Jesus. Let's see if he's got any other tricks these guys don't know. So they get around him. Now, if a demon has made someone mute like this, and we know from Scripture it says, from as a child he has been. Can you imagine? Not only is he mute, but he's convulsing. He's going into all these issues. In fact, Mark 18 says this. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes stiff. And this is the dad speaking, and he says, And I told your disciples so that they would cast it out, but they could not do it. So he's probably heard Jesus and his disciples are casting out demons. They're healing. They're doing all this. So dad brings his son, and he can't do it. Now, reading that description of what's going on today, we'd probably go, that's, that's like epilepsy is what that is. He's having an epileptic seizure. Here's a picture that I found of just, for those of you who like to just kind of have a, a picture to wrap your mind around, this is sort of, a, of what the scene must have looked like. The poor boy is just, he's convulsing, he's stiff. He's having all these problems, and dad is just desperate. Help me, he's been that way since birth. Now, a quick note about demons and deliverance. In James 4, 7, it says, resist the enemy and he will flee. Seems very straightforward. And it is very straightforward if you have the Holy Spirit. So number one, you have to know Jesus to have that authority to resist demons. And then you have to have the Holy Spirit within. The disciples at this point had been given that limited authority by Jesus to go out into the villages. Remember, go out in the towns and deliver and heal. And they did that, but they didn't have yet the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't happen until Pentecost. So they didn't have that yet. And as we see, as we'll see shortly, we'll talk about this, the same process for healing and deliverance, just because it worked one time or just because it even worked several times, doesn't mean it's going to work every time. And this is something that I think the disciples hadn't quite grasped yet, and they're about to see how that works in their life. We have to seek the Holy Spirit on a case-by-case basis. And since Jesus wasn't right there to direct them, to give them the words, they just relied on what they had seen and done before. And maybe it would work, 
but maybe it doesn't. See, no demon likes to give up territory, especially one like this that had been there since, since childhood. This demon was well entrenched, and it didn't want to give up its territory easily. So it's not going to do it just a mere suggestion. You need the authority of Jesus. And so these disciples, even though they were with Jesus, didn't have what it took in that moment. They were just going by what they had seen before, and it wasn't working for them. Mark 9.19, and he answered them. So this is, I'm sorry, did I miss? Sorry. And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. That's in response of the dad saying, I brought my child to them, but they couldn't do it. And so it looks like he's yelling back. He's frustrated. Clearly, you can see that. But it looks like he's yelling back at the poor dad. Think about the humanity that this shows for Jesus, though. He had just come down from the mountain, just been transfigured, just been spoken over by his father, Moses and Elijah on his right hand and on his left hand, all this stuff. His father in heaven declared his identity, ready to kick off his ministry. By the way, there's only after this healing and and deliverance, there's only one more that we see in Scripture. It's Bartimaeus when he gets closer to Jerusalem. So that part of his ministry is nearing an end, and he's going to teach him the last few things and then fulfill his destiny. But in the middle of all that, now this challenge. You can almost feel like he's like, okay, now things are going to be different. I'm going to head to Jerusalem, and and we're going to fulfill that part of of the prophecy for that. And then he's brought right back to like, oh, but we have one more to heal here, and you guys can't do it, so I'm going to have to do it again. You almost can just feel that. Mark 9.20, and they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, so look at this scripture, when he... So they brought the boy to him, capital H. That's our clue that it's Jesus. When they brought the boy to Jesus, when he, so that's a small H, so that's either the demon or the boy, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. That is a crazy scene, and that is that demon just saying, I know what's about to happen, but I'm not going to give it up easily. The demon knew that his time of tormenting this boy with impunity was nearing an end. After an almost entire lifetime, but he was going to go out with a flourish. So we know all the way back, if we remember from Mark 124, when Jesus confronts the, the man that was possessed, the demon, the legion, says, what business do you have with us? This is Mark 124. What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So they know, they recognize Jesus, they know his authority. There's no question. And this demon knows exactly what's about to happen. And so he causes an extra bit of convulsions and and chaos with this poor boy. Jesus turns to the dad, Mark 9.21, and he says, and he asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? Father says, since childhood. Now, Jesus knew the answer to that question. He was asking that for the benefit of the people around. This wasn't just sickness. He didn't just eat something bad today. This has been happening since he was a child. 
And so the deliverance from that is going to be even more spectacular when it happens here in just a minute. Mark 9.22, dad goes on, It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. See, I think the demon never really intended to kill the boy. We know from all the way back in Job that demons can kill. But it wouldn't really suit the demon's purpose to just kill him. It suited his purposes better just to torment him his whole life. Everybody around him, his father, everybody was now wrapped up in this demonic possession. If he just killed him, it would end there. And then so would end the show. I don't think the demon had any intent to actually kill him. But here's the part we need to look at. The second half of verse 22 But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Some people, many people in fact, hear that and they use that statement as an indictment on the faith that the father had. All kinds of teachings, all kinds of books and study talking about how the father's faith was imperfect and if he just had a little better faith, then this wouldn't have been a problem. See, I don't think that's exactly where it's going. I think it's actually more of an indicator that the man was unsure of his worthiness to receive deliverance and healing from God. See, in that culture especially, they weren't used to having a king care about them at all. Kings didn't walk into your village and ask you how you're doing and if there's anything they can do to serve you. This is not at all the kind of of authority and kingship that they were used to. So to hear in your mind, Jesus can and will heal your son, still doesn't get over that huge hurdle in his brain like, okay, I know he can, I've heard it. I know it's possible, but why would he do it for me? He might just be saying like, I know you can do anything, but maybe I'm just too pitiful for you to bother with. I feel like that's what's going on here because isn't that just like the human condition? We sit here and we go, I know that Jesus is the Messiah. I know that he can do anything. Um, We're just not always sure he wants to do it for us. That's what the enemy wants to just sit and poke at you and say, yeah, yeah, he is king. He is Lord. He can do all these things. Uh, But you may be beyond saving. You may be too pitiful. After all, you got yourself in this position. Get yourself out. That's what the enemy wants to speak to us, and it fits with our nature, so it sounds like it makes sense. This guy's having his hard, hard time wrapping his mind around that too, just like we would. Mark 9, 23, but Jesus said to him, this is Jesus, just incredulous, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. We're going to start getting into a few sections here that it's really important that we grasp what's happening here. First of all, I think when Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, I think there's two elements to really truly believing. Two very simple things. Number one, knowing that Jesus can. But the second part of that is knowing that you can't. Because as long as you think, well, if Jesus doesn't come through, I can fall back on this. Or as long as you think, I don't even need to bother him because I can do this. That's not faith. Faith is knowing he can and you can't. 
That's my personal definition of faith. Mark 9, 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Anybody ever heard teaching on this? There's been thousands upon thousands of teachings on that. I do believe. Help my unbelief. It almost sounds like he's lying like, I do believe, but I don't. It almost sounds kind of schizophrenic. I think a lot of times I like to look at the Greek and see the Greek or the Hebrew and see if we have some clues as far as what's going on by the meaning of the words. In this case, the Greek versions of the word belief and unbelief really don't give us a lot to go on. But I think it's more like, it's more like this man saying, I know that you can, I'm just not sure why you'd want to. I know that you can, but I don't know that you will. I believe, help my unbelief. See, again, these people just weren't able to get their minds around a king who would want to help them like that. Mark 9.25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. I'm sure the crowd's is drawn in by the scene the demon's creating, foaming at the mouth and writhing around. And it's, it had to be an incredible scene. Now, the demon had no choice to submit. Again, no choice. He knew it was coming, but he's going to create a little bit more chaos on the way out. Mark 9, 26 and 27. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. This is, this is Mark's economy of words. After all this, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he got up. Again, this demon's just raging because he's given up ground that he's spent a lot of time, and it had to be quite some sight. So that episode is over. They leave this region. We don't know where they, if they left the region, left the town. We don't know where they go. They went into a house somewhere. Mark 9, 28 When he came into the house, so they leave there and they walk to this house, his disciples began asking him privately, why is it that we could not cast it out? That's human too. Okay, explain to us why we couldn't do it. They had to know what they had done wrong. They care. They don't want to just guess and fail. What did we do wrong, Jesus? And he answers them with this, Mark 9, 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything except prayer. This kind of demon can't come out by anything except prayer. If you have a King James Version, or actually a couple versions, add the words and fasting. The words and fasting are actually not in the original manuscript. So if they are in your version, it's probably bracketed. And then... Now, before I go there, let me just talk. Prayer and fasting. The reason it says and fasting is a prayer and fasting are very closely tied together as spiritual disciplines that Jesus teaches about all the time. So the fact that the word and fasting was added to that was it's a discipline. We pray, we fast. But to be clear, that's not what the original manuscript said. It just said by prayer. So let's look at that a little bit closer. What lesson 
is Jesus trying to teach them here? And I think it's a common thread that he's been teaching throughout all this. And to get a little bit more info that might help us figure out where he's going with this, let's look at Matthew. So again, Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. Again, most of us have probably heard this, so we're going to explain it a little bit. Matthew 17, 19, 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your meager faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, if you're looking in your, in your Bible right now, you might notice that Matthew 21 is either not there at all, or again, it's in brackets because it talks about fasting. Now, Another thing a lot of people, and I want to show you, when it says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, there, I realize there are people who have no idea what a mustard seed is or what he's trying to illustrate. Here's a picture of it. That's what a mustard seed looks like in scale to a human hand. It's tiny. Even blown up a million times, it's no bigger than a golf ball. It's tiny. A mustard seed is tiny. So is the teaching that if you even have tiny faith, you can ask a mountain to move and it will move. There's nothing that's impossible for you. Do you think that's what the teaching is? Sometimes that's how it's taken, but let me ask you this. If you're here and you know Jesus, would you admit that you probably have at least a super tiny amount of faith? I would imagine most of us would say, I have a super tiny amount of faith. Now, if I said to you, if I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want, we're all going to go out front. We're going to look at Mount Evans that's in the distance, and we're going to tell it to move. What are the chances you think it would move? Slim to none, probably, right? Now, stay with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Slim to none. So that seems to go against what Scripture is saying. If you have even just tiny faith, you could tell that mountain to move, and it'll move. There's nothing that's impossible for you. And yet, why do we sometimes pray for things and we don't see it happening right in front of us? How do we reconcile that in our heads with what this Scripture seems to say? Let's look at it. Meager faith. So Jesus is pointing to the words meager faith. The reason you couldn't do it is because of your meager faith. So let's look at meager faith. In the Greek, it's oligopistos. Oligopistos is the definition of meager faith. It's just one word in Greek. And the definition is, besides just low in quantity, lacking sufficiency. And the biblical use is someone who's dull to hearing the Lord's voice. That's how they would have used that word then. Dull to hearing the Lord's voice or disinterested in walking intimately with him. So Jesus is saying, before we get there, let's go even deeper before what Jesus is saying. I'll help you walk through it. So where does faith come from? When I say where does faith come from, half of us are going, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. And other people, faith is a gift from God. So we've all got our favorite scriptures of where faith comes from. But here's what we know. Can we buy it? No. You can't Amazon Prime it and have it show up at your doorstep tomorrow. Can we take a class and get a certificate declaring that we have sufficient faith to move mountains? 
Probably not. Can we work extra hard to earn it? Can we just study a little bit more? Can we earn it? The answer is no. Can we, here's a good one, can we rub up against someone who's super holy and maybe some of it will rub up on us? You could do that, but it'd probably get you kicked out of church. But in Greek and Roman culture, when this was written, faith meant so much more than we see it right now. Our minds just don't see that term faith in the same way they did there. In the secular world, Greek and Rome, uh, uh, Greece and Rome, it meant a guarantee or a warranty. If you sold somebody something or, or sold a piece of property or something, you would, you would give them a guarantee or warranty to a, maybe an animal or livestock that you said. That was, that was the guarantee. That was the faith because that's what that word translates as. It's pistis, and that word literally means a warranty. So when Paul says, and Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, it was the Christian church in Rome, so he understood it. They understood it to mean just that when he wrote Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When he said that, he knew what faith meant. It's a guarantee. So the only way to have a guarantee in what you hear is correct is you hear it from Christ. That's the only way to know for sure. So if you break that verse apart even further, faith, as I said, is pistis, and it's a belief, trust, and confidence. But the usage is to be persuaded to trust. And it's always, in Scripture we read it, it's always a gift from God. It always is a gift from God. We go further down, hearing by the word of Christ. That word translates as rhema. And rhema is a thing spoken. That's the short version but it's a word or saying of any kind as a command, a report, or a promise. And in Scripture, of course, it's used as the Lord speaking his his dynamic living word to you. That's what rhema is. So when Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from there to here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying literally that if the Holy Spirit speaks a command, a report, or a promise to you, you can take that to the bank because it's going to happen. Even if it's just a tiny whisper, even if you don't understand, even if it seems totally impossible or preposterous, it could seem totally out of the realm of reality, If the Holy Spirit speaks it to you, it is a guarantee backed by the sovereign power of the creator of the heavens and earth. And there's nothing that will stop that. The error that the disciples made is that they just tried to repeat what they had seen before. It worked then, it'll work now. That's the problem. They thought that it would work because that's how they'd seen it done. But it didn't work. What they needed was direction from Jesus, just like they had before. See, they didn't have the Holy Spirit residing in them. So they had to speak to Jesus directly to get guidance or to get commission. We, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And by asking that Holy Spirit, can I or should I? And if you hear yes, do it. 
If the Holy Spirit told me right now, run at that wall full speed and you will go through it, no problem, I would do it. But I'm certainly not going to do it because one of you says, Holy Spirit told me, so don't even think about it. If the Holy Spirit speaks it to you as a command, a report, a promise, there's nothing that can stop it. So if the Holy Spirit tells you right now, I want you to go outside and tell that mountain to move, and it will move, okay? If that happens, tell us all, and we'll go out and watch. But it doesn't happen just because we say, ah, Scripture says, anything I ask for will be done for me. Anything you ask for that the Holy Spirit has said, ask for that, and it will happen. That's how it works. That's where the power of the gospel lies. There's no formula If you hear the Holy Spirit, do it, act on it, because that's where the power is. The Holy Spirit tells you, do this, don't do that. You act on it in boldness. So now, I just got done saying there's no formula. I have my five-point formula for how to activate the miraculous in your life. You want to hear it? Write this down. I was going to make a book, write a book. It was more like a pamphlet, and it's not even enough for a pamphlet. It's more like a flyer. I'll just tell you, and you can write it down. The formula for seeing the miraculous in your life is a five-step program. Here it is. Number one, believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Number one. Number two, seek the voice of God. Ask for it. Don't just go on what you think you know. Seek his voice. And then, maybe the hardest step is step number three. Trust what you hear. Trust what you hear. Number four, act boldly then in the name of Jesus. Act boldly. Amen. Act on what you hear. And the last thing, I said number three was maybe the most difficult. Our human nature makes this one almost as hard. Number five, give glory and praise to the one who is the source of it all. That's how the miraculous will happen in your life. You need a miracle in your life for healing? Ask the Holy Spirit, how do I do this? Do I pray? Do I do this? Do I have someone else pray? How does this work? And you act on it. Do you need financial help? Seek the voice of the Holy Spirit and act on what you hear. Do you need something so big as a mountain to move? Ask the Holy Spirit and ask and act on what you hear. And then through that, give him the glory in everything that you do. Amen? Guys, let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You give us your word your Logos word that we can read and so we can know the types of things that we can and should be asking you for and then you plant your Holy Spirit in us so that we can hear your alive and living and dynamic rhema word directly to our spirit in what we should do and how we should walk out our faith. So yes, Father, we have faith as tiny as a mustard seed. Help us to know that those promises apply to us. Help us to know that we just have to ask. And when we hear it from you, Lord, give us the boldness to step into that. Whether it makes sense or not, help us to walk into that. And by that, you will get the glory.
It's not us. It's not anything that we did. But it's all because of you. It's all because of who Jesus is. And you loved us enough to send him, to send him as a sacrifice, the perfect lamb, to die on the cross for us so that we can receive your spirit, so that we can be reconciled to you, so that we can live a life that gives glory to you. So, Father, help us walk in boldness. And I stand right now against any lie of the enemy that says that doesn't apply to you. If you're sitting here thinking that applies to the people around me who are so much better than me, that is a lie from the enemy. And I rebuke that right now in the name of Jesus. The words of God, the promises of God are yes and are true for you. And they are not as a result of anything you did or didn't do, but it's what he did. And because of what he did and his faithfulness and his great love for you, that all of these promises apply to you. Our job is to ask, which promise should I cash in today? And he will guide us in that way. So Lord, help us to see that. Help us to walk faithfully and boldly into what you have for us. We praise you this day and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together right now. If you're new here, if you're out there online, grab your elements. You need something that represents the body, something that represents the blood. And here in house, you can serve yourself at the crosses if you like. There's juice and bread and crackers there. I'll be serving up front here. Pastor Gabe, I think, is out doing compassion right now, so I'll just be serving up here. I've got wine and the bread, and it's through that, through the broken body of Christ, taking the price that we should have been paying upon himself. And the blood of the new covenant, which is what the wine represents, we never have to walk a day without knowing the voice of the Lord. We never have to walk this earth not knowing what our purpose is, not knowing which direction we go. Through the blood of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. We are reconciled and we have the Holy Spirit within us, which will guide us through to that life of miraculous Miracles should never be undervalued, but they should be a normal part of our life. This should be something that we expect to see and we do see every day. So when we take communion, that should be a moment of reflecting just on the thankfulness that we have. Think about, as you take communion, just think about What's the last miracle I experienced in my life? Something that I can look at and I can say, thank you, Jesus, that was impossible without you. And if you have a hard time thinking of what that is, we have a prayer team in the back. I would love for you to go back there and talk to them. Because the miraculous in our life, I'll give you a hint. It starts right now that every time you sit here, your lungs are filling with air and you're not even thinking about it. It's just happening blood is pumping through your veins because he loves you and he made you like that. Let's just start there. Thank you, Lord, that we are here and we are able to worship you. And let's think about these things as we take communion together and celebrate his goodness and his grace in our lives.
Then the very last thing I just want to let you know before we go into worship, please take the time to stop by and look through the compassion displays that are out there. The VR goggles, they're fun. It's really a cool part. But by partaking in the compassion program, by sponsoring a child around the world, you can change a life, not only a life, but all the lives that that life will impact. We never know how God is going to use the things that we do in the kingdom. But if you take the time to pray about it, God, should I? Not because Pastor Bob said so. God, should I? And if you're bold enough to act on that, we can trust 100% that the miraculous will happen through our faithfulness to that. Amen? So guys, don't just rush out the door. Take your time and let's worship together. Thank you, guys.